Amen. All right, well, morning, Mercy Fellowship. Hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We're going to be continuing in our series in 1 Peter. And uh, really what I'd like to do is I'd like you to commend you to watch last week's sermon. It was a lot of clarifying things as far as the roles of husbands and wives that I think there's a lot of ambiguity around. So I just want to bring that up to you. And uh, this week we're looking at some weird verses. They've been debated since Peter has written them. And so I was thinking to Chris, I was like, why did you give me these verses? This is, this is lead pastor grade stuff. I'm not a lead pastor. I'm just in training, you know. I don't know what I'm doing up here. And so uh, I was like, why did you give me these? And I saw what he preached last week. And I was like, that's okay. I'll take a ghost of Christmas past Jesus any day. A little bit of recap, though, if you're opening up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3, of just where Peter's going and where his thought and, and the flow of the book is. He is talking to Christians that are scattered across Asia Minor who are facing persecution. These are people that are suffering. They're, the cost of following Jesus is great. They're losing relationships. They're losing jobs. They're losing social status. And Peter opens up and he says, hey, praise be to God. Praise God. Bless God. And you think, well, why should I praise God? And he says, praise God because you've been born again to a living hope. And I don't know what you walk into church with this morning, whatever hurts or burdens or sufferings, but if you're looking for a reason to praise God, there's one right there. You've been born again. The minute you've placed your trust in Jesus, the old you has died. Someone new has arisen in light of that. Praise be to God, you've been born again to a living hope. And he goes on to say, you've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's as if when they're suffering, stuff's getting stolen from them. As they're suffering, they're losing. And Peter's reminding them, yeah, they're stealing a lot of stuff, but they can't take this. They can't take your inheritance from you. This is something that is undefiled and unfading, and it's kept in heaven by the hands of your Father. He's the one that holds this, and it can't be taken. And this, then, church, becomes the hope that helps them to suffer in hard times and in hard situations. And Peter, he says this then, okay, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, if you're going to be a child of the Father, the result of this then is that you are to live a holy life imitating your Father who is holy. And this can really get weird if you've been in church a long time. You'll get a guy who's just got a shelf for eyebrows, who's pointing at you and he's frowning, and he says, it's not the pursuit of happiness, it's the pursuit of holiness. And you think, that's it? That's my example of holiness? Like, the guy does really good of not emphasizing or pursuing happiness because he seems so miserable while he's pursuing holiness. Uh, the reality of holiness is this, church. The happiest of people are, in fact, the holiest of people. They're so in line with their Savior, Jesus, and that enables them to live a happy and blessed life. And he calls them to say, hey, you need to grow in holiness like your father. And so you think, okay, well, this is how it works then. I've got Jesus, I've got my Bible, I've got my quiet time, and I'll grow in holiness. And the Apostle Peter would say, no, that's not how you grow in holiness. Yeah, you need Jesus. Yeah, you need your Bible. Yeah, you need prayer, but you also need the church. You also need the community of God's people around you. And Peter, he'll go on to say this, that we've all been gathered together as living stones, stones of which that have been rejected by man, but in the sight of God, they are precious. 
The foundation is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. That's what we stand upon, God's word. And the cornerstone which holds it all together is Jesus Christ. We are built together as living stones rejected by man, but precious in the sight of God. And so Peter goes on to talk about how we are to live as a community. He talks about how we are to live in relationship to governing authorities. He talks about how we're to live in relationship as servants and masters. Talks about how we are to live in relationship between a husband and a wife. And this morning, we're talking about how we live as a suffering community. So if you got your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. We'll go ahead and start there and move on. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I'll tell you what, I've been a Christian now for about 11 years, and I know that's not too long compared to some of you older saints who have been Christians longer than I've been alive. Uh, The Bible's claim, though, and I'm convinced of this, that this is the Bible's claim, is this, that we are primarily known as Christians not by what we believe, but rather by how we behave. And by me saying that, I'm not minimizing what we believe. What we believe is incredibly true. If it weren't, I wouldn't be up here preaching. But these two things are intertwined, and the gospel and the Bible's constant appeal to us is, hey, people know who you are by how you act. So it's really true. What you believe impacts how you behave. That is really true, but it's also true the other way. It doesn't really matter too much of what you confess. How you believe is a clear indicator of what you actually do believe. I, uh, I had a coworker in construction years back, and he has tattoos from, from his neck all the way down his ankles. And uh, on his sleeves, though, he's got a bunch of tattooed Bible verses, right? Super holy, super cool. He'd be a great Hillsong pastor. And, um, and you know what? He would go off just talking about all the different women that he'd been with. And he'd go off talking about all the things that he did with the, these women. So eventually I asked him, I said, hey, why do you have these tattoos on you? And he says, well, I have these tattoos because I'm a Christian. I didn't respond to him, but it should have said, no, you're not a Christian. No, if, if you're living a life like this, you're hell-bound. You are not living like a follower of Jesus. You are not committed to someone in marriage. You failed in this. And so we need to hone in on this, though, right? Peter, in these first two verses in the section that we looked at, he's talking about how do Christians act? How should a Christian community act? And he talks about, in verse 8, how Christians should act, and then in verse 9, how Christians should react. And there's five of them here. Let me go ahead and break them down for you. The first of this is unity of mind, right? Unity of mind. Unity of mind, church, is not uniformity in all things. You with me on that? We don't all have to come here and all talk the same way, all dress the same way, all agree on 100% of everything. Uh, The definition for that is a cult that should be avoided. We're not pursuing that. 
Rather, what we're talking about is this. As a Christian community, we obviously all have to hold to certain beliefs, right? Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Bible is the word of God. The nature of sin, right? These certain things we all rally around. And yet, the reality is, so many of you come from different backgrounds, different lifestyles. And you're going to look at things differently. But if we can all gather around with unity of mind around the essentials of the gospel around the pursuit of the great commission of making disciples of all nations, I believe that's what Peter's calling for. You know, I see this really clearly with churches, that churches, however, they all pursue the same things. Most churches pursue the uh, same things, I should say that. But they have a distinction and practice of how they do things. How we try to fulfill the great commission here of making disciples of all nations is going to be different than how the Foursquare Church does it down the street. It's going to be different than how we've even partnered with churches in Everett who pursue this. But we're all united in mind around the essentials of what we're pursuing after, despite how we do it differently. Unity of mind. The next one's sympathy. I looked this up. Our dictionary definition, sympathy, our, our modern dictionaries is this, feeling pity or sorrow for someone. And I actually really like the Greek word because the Greek word goes so much deeper than just that surface level definition. It literally means to share the experience with others, right? Sharing the experience of suffering, sharing the experience of pain, sharing the experience of even delight with others. You're involved in their life. You're not just at a distance. Uh, The third one is this, brotherly love. And this is self-explanatory, right? Brotherly love, it means this, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter does this in his letter, right? He, Peter starts off his letter with talking about brotherly love, mentioning it. He'll go ahead and he'll mention brotherly love here right in the middle of his letter. And at the end of his letter, he'll go ahead and he'll mention brotherly love. Why? Because it's important. In fact, some scholars say because brotherly love is placed in the middle of all five of these, it is the heart that holds all of these together. And brotherly love, this is a hallmark of Christian community. That's why it's so important. That's why I believe Peter continually brings it up. It is worthy of being emphasized more than once. The fourth one is this, a tender heart, right? A tender heart instead of a calloused heart, instead of a a hard heart, a heart that's able to feel and have emotions towards suffering and afflictions of other Christians. I'm reminded of this. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, he talks about when you become a Christian, when you, when you become born again, what happens is the heart of stone that you have, that's callous, is replaced and a heart of flesh is put in its place. A heart that's able to feel and know and love and care. A tender heart. And then the last one's this, a humble mind. Um, John Calvin says it far better than I could say it, so I'm just going to quote him for you guys. He says, if we are not humble-minded, we will be led to pride and haughtiness in despising our neighbor rather than loving our neighbor. All right, you see those five? How are you doing on those? How do you rank on those? We're not going to rank on those, don't worry. But here's what Peter's telling us, though. Peter's telling us, hey, a Christian community, these are things you should pursue. These are things that you should strive after as a community, and this is what builds up a Christian community. But there's an issue that takes place then. What happens for us in a Christian community when we pursue these things and we reach out to others in kindness and that kindness is not returned? What happens when you show sympathy to someone else and they don't return sympathy? 
What happens when you reach out with brotherly love and your, the response is apathy to you? Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That word could also be insult. Don't re, um, repay an insult for an insult. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You hear that, church? This is where the world and the church are supposed to split. This is where we go different ways, right? When you have that attitude of, I want repayment, I want vengeance, this is where we're supposed to dive the other way. The church doesn't always do this, right? We fail in this category. I'm reminded of, of uh, growing up, sitting around the dinner table with my family. My family's from Canada, and so if you're a male in Canada, really, you're either going to be a logger or a hockey player. It's like your two choices. And my dad was a hockey player. And so uh, what, we were sitting around the dinner table one time, and I was poking around, as a young kid does. And uh, I asked him, hey, if I was to get in a fight at school, what should I do? And my dad said, just make sure you win. That was his advice to me. You know, that's the, the words of Randy Hall. They are not inspired, okay? What's an inspired word of God then? What does Jesus say for us? Well, Jesus says this, Luke chapter 6. He says, but I say to you to hear. But I say to you who hear, right? He says, if you have ears, listen up. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Really quickly, church, I felt compelled when I was putting this down. It says, pray for those who abuse you. Don't live with, continue to live with those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, you do to them also. Church, this is what Jesus calls you and I to do, right? When we're hurt, when things come across us, when we're faced with suffering and we have the, the energic reaction to re for revenge, for payback, this is when we go ahead and we bless rather than curse so that we may obtain a blessing. And so church, I think I've already said it, let me say it again, we don't do these things perfectly, right? We don't do these things perfectly, but I will tell you this. There's hundreds of thousands of churches across the world that are doing their best to pursue being like Christ. And I tell you what, I get so sick of it, so sick of hearing about how bad the church is. Oh, the church is broken. Oh, the church is corrupt. Oh, the church is so messed up. Well, good. It sounds like there's a place for you and me, okay? It sounds like we belong there. If you want to be a part of a place where we need to pretend and we've got to pretend that life's together and we're just all clean and things are okay, uh, there's a cult off of exit 206. It's a Mormon temple. I'm sure they'd love to have you. If we're going to be a church that preaches the gospel, though, and I believe that we are a church that preaches the gospel, our economy and culture has to be one of grace. It has to be a place where the worst of sinners can come and find a place at the table. It has to be a place where people that suffer and are hurting and are lost can come and find rest for their souls. And church, I tell you what, I love the church. I've been hurt by the church. I know some of you have been hurt by the church, but I love the church. I've shared it before, I believe, but my dad died when I was 12 very suddenly of a heart attack. And that following morning, the first people at our door was the church. They showed up, and they talked to my mom, and they said, hey, we're going to cover your finances for as long as we need to do it. They did that for 10-plus years. 
Did they suffer? Oh, yeah. Was it hard on their, uh, on their bills? Oh, yeah. But they really believed what James says when he says true religion is this, that you love orphans and widows and you care for them in their affliction. And they took that to heart and they actually did it. I was actually just talking to a gal. I was installing windows at her house on, on Camino Island a, a couple months ago. She actually used to go to our church. And uh, she's going to a church now in Camino Island, and her husband's diagnosed with cancer, and it's been a huge ordeal for them and their family. So I was chatting with her, and I said, hey, how's your church? Are they doing okay? She's like, oh, we love our church. We love your church. That's great. What are they doing? They're showing up. They're dropping off meals. They're praying for the kids, praying for the wife. They're going all the way to Seattle to pray for the husband while he's staying there by himself. Church, this is an amazing thing. Yeah, the church is broken. Yeah, the church is corrupt. But what, you want to get rid of it? What's going to take its place? Jesus found the church to be so worth his time that he was willing to die for it. I love the church and all of its flaws because it's a place for me. So Peter says this, we are to strive for these characteristics as a community. And he reminds us of the hope that we're going to have in Jesus. And this hope that we have in Jesus, it allows us to endure hard times. Continuing on in our uh, section of scripture, verses 13 through 17. To Peter, he says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who is who asks for a reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All of these verses really have this singular idea that's in the center of it, and it's this idea of hope. Because he starts off with asking this, hey, how are you going to suffer for righteousness' sake? You're going to do so because of the hope you have. He ends it with even asking this question, saying that it's better to suffer for doing good. How is it better to suffer for doing good? It's because of the hope that we have. Hope is this great idea in the Bible, church, that we can trust God with our future because he's been faithful with the present and the past. You hear me on that? If God has saved his people in the past, he'll save his people in the future. If God's been faithful in the past, he's going to be faithful in the future. And this is the thing that helps us in the hard, dark times of life. I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon. He said this, hope is like a star, never to be seen in the prosperity of the daytime, but only to be discovered in the adversity of the night. And the idea behind that is this, in the dark times of life, right, there needs to be something above us, something bright, something that catches our attention and vision, that tells us and lets us know there's going to be a better day ahead. That our current circumstances aren't going to be forever. And I'll tell you what, Mercy Fellowship, I feel a burden for us as the church on this. We can tend to be just like the world in this, where we are incredibly pessimistic due to our surrounding circumstances. Because I get it, right? Yeah, we dealt with COVID. Uh, we're going through a war currently. I don't know what you're going through personally, just to add on top to everything else that's going on. So I'm not denying reality, but I really do believe that the Christian can at one time mourn our current circumstances, and on the other side too, be incredibly hope-filled for a future because of who our God is. 
I think those two things can coincide together. And Peter's making the case that in these hard times, you and me as followers of Jesus, people should look at our lives and how we deal with the things that are going on currently, and people should look at us and ask for the reason of the hope that we have. This morning, Mercy Fellowship, do you have hope? If you don't have hope, let me give you some this morning. Hope for the Christian lies in the resurrection of Jesus, right? This great event that we're going to celebrate next week. And it's going to be a party, and it's going to be fun, and I can't wait for it. I'm hoping that there's sunshine. It'll be great, though. Our hope lies in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And here's the reality for you and me, church. If Jesus walked out of the grave, anything is possible. Anything is possible. You know, I've, I've got health issues and stuff, and I don't know what's going to happen. Well, if Jesus walked out of the grave, anything's possible. Well, I don't know about my finances. I don't know where they're going to be. Well, if Jesus walked out of the grave, anything is possible. Well, I don't know about my marriage, and I don't know if we're going to make it. Well, hey, if Jesus walked out of the grave, anything is, in fact, possible. Church, this is the thing that spurns on the church and spurned on the church for 2,000 years to where we're at today. And so here's what I want for you and for me, church. I want you and me to be hope-filled Christians. I want you and me to have this missionary mindset amongst us. And here's what I mean by that. Missionaries, they are incredibly hope-filled people. Uh, They go into horrible settings where basically nobody knows Jesus and goes to tell them of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. That's the job of missionaries, right? It's a horrible situation. It seems bleak at best, and yet they go with hope. Why? Because of who their God is. I'm reminded of my uh, my grandparents on my mom's side. They were missionaries in northern Canada uh, to natives out there. It's really cool, actually. They lived in a cabin by the river, and uh, there's pictures of my grandpa filling up his canoe with food, and he's got to bring it downstream, and it'd be a full-day event to get food for the family. Really cool. But the, the, the tribe that they went to, though, is upwards of 95% of them were alcoholics. And so they had to deal with that. And my grandpa and grandma, they had four, four kids. And uh, there would be nights, they'd be going to sleep, and they'd smell something, and it's the, the, the natives are lighting their cabin on fire. And so they'd have to go out, he'd have to put it out, and then come Sunday, he's communicating to them about the grace of God. Now, I don't know what gets you upset or makes you mad. If someone's lighting my house on fire, I'm going to lose it. I'd be so upset, right? How do you deal with that? How do you endure? You endure by being hope-filled. That's how you endure. You really believe the gospel. You really believe that Jesus rose from the grave. You really believe that anything's possible. And the result of that is that you're going to suffer well, that you're going to endure some things pretty well. I'm reminded once again, too, of another story with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, he uh, was talking to a gal who was, had just a number of days to live in the hospital. And he writes to her and he says, there are far greater things ahead than any that we might leave behind. And actually the story goes, she ends up getting better. She gets out of the hospital. She lives for another 12 years. And C.S. Lewis, after penning those words, he dies in about five months. But the Christian attitude is always that church. Despite our suffering, despite our pain, despite the sin that we're, we're in right now, If you're in Christ, there's far greater things ahead than any that are in our past, any that we might leave behind. So Peter, he wants you and I to suffer well. He wants to make sure that we understand why we are suffering for Jesus as we carry this hope with us. 
And so we'll continue on with these sections, uh, a section of verses. Verses 18 through 22. Peter says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the righteous, unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Weird verses, we'll talk about them in a minute. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Verse 18, church, this is the heart of the section right here. I love this verse. This has everything you need to know for why Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Let's take a look at it, right? Jesus died for you and for me. He says that he suffered once for sins, right? Not, he's not going to suffer a second time for sins or a third time for sins. Jesus didn't do 50% of it, and we do the other 50%. We don't sing on Sunday morning, Jesus paid for half of it. We sing, Jesus paid it all, and we really believe that. Jesus suffered once for sins. It says as well that he, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. What do you have there? Well, you have this, what's called substitutionary atonement taking place. That was my cross that Jesus died on. Those were my sins that Jesus took. That was my unrighteousness that he took on himself and gave me his righteousness. And, Jesus, and church, he did all of this so that he might bring us to God. That is good. That is clarifying. If you grew up in church, you probably heard the phrase, hey, if you want to go to heaven someday, you need to repent of sin and trust in Jesus, or otherwise you'll burn in hell for eternity. And you're thinking, okay, well, that's, that's kind of true, but it misses the mark. Jesus died on the cross, yeah, to get you to heaven, but there's a king of that kingdom, and it's God. Jesus died to get you and I not just to heaven, but to God. That's the point. And church, God is the one who redeems everything. So that is why when we get God, we do in fact get heaven. And this church is why we suffer. Jesus, our forerunner, he suffered for us. Beyond that though, church, we have the, uh, the call to suffer for righteousness sake. And it finds an example in Jesus of what I would like to call purposeful suffering. Right? Because the worst thing that could happen to you and to me is in our lives, we're facing suffering, we're facing hardships, and the result of that is we just say, oh, what a waste. What a waste of this time. What a waste of all the hardships I've faced. The reality, church, is really this, that God allows his people to go through seasons of suffering for the purpose of refining them into a beautiful, restored picture of Jesus. That's the point. I'll read this quote to you. It's from a commentary. I will probably never do it again because commentaries are dry and dull and never excited about the Bible. Uh, that's not their, uh, their task either. Their task is just to tell you what it says. But let me go ahead and quote this to you. Uh, this author from the commentary says, Peter points to us the suffering of Jesus and what it enabled him to achieve. He brings us to God. He's raised from the dead. He makes proclamation to the spirits in prison. We'll talk about that in a second. He makes possible the cleansing and salvation that baptism symbolizes, and he is raised to the preeminent position of power and glory. 
such suffering was obviously far from pointless and was in fact the will of God for Christ and could be God's will for his followers. This is not in the sense that they could die to bring others to God, but that pattern of suffering leading to glory is one that Jesus called his followers to take. This is what purposeful suffering looks like, church. It's for the cause of bringing people to Jesus. And I'm persuaded by this, that the church globally has been successful in taking on this purposeful suffering for the purpose of expanding the kingdom and seeing people know Jesus, and has done so pretty well for the last 2,000 years. Right? Missionaries in our communities, missionaries abroad, being very purposeful in their suffering for the purpose of people getting to know God. And you say, well, how so? Right? How so? Well, that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. That's so. How so? Jesus doesn't suffer forever, though, because his cross leads to a crown. And Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, it is the sole event in history that uh, declares to the world his victory. Victory over evil, victory over Satan and demons, sin and death. And Peter writes that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Really weird verse. What in the world does that mean, right? Well, there's two schools of thought. It's been debated ever since Peter penned it, so we're going to figure it out tonight, uh, today, of course, right? Two schools of thought, though. Let me give you one of them. First is this. Some interpreters believe that Jesus was, in fact, in the days of Noah, right? All the way back in Genesis, Jesus was there, and that he was preaching the gospel to them. That he was telling them, hey, you need to repent. You need to trust God. You need to get in the ark if you want to be saved. Uh, this is what theologians would call Christophanies. This is when Jesus makes an appearance in the Old Testament, and it's not explicitly clear that it's Jesus, although it could be implicitly stated. So that's one option. Second option is this, and I'm persuaded by it, is that Jesus, post-resurrection, so it's not that Jesus died, went to hell, and then came back up. It's a debated issue. Pastor Chris could clear that up in a couple weeks. But this section right here, though, but Jesus, post-resurrection, went into hell, and that the spirits that Peter's referring to, they're fallen angels. Used to be on Team Jesus, used to work for Jesus, they rebelled with Satan, now they're fallen angels. And Jesus is communicating to them not only his victory over them, but he's sealing their doom. I'm more persuaded by that second one, and here's why. Uh, the word spirits can be translated or referred to angels, and so it makes more sense to me that Jesus is speaking to angels who have disobeyed Jesus. Regardless, though, of where you take a stance on that verse, though, really what these verses are all pointing towards is this, how trustworthy Jesus truly is. And you say, how so? Think about this for a second. Peter refers to Noah and the flood, and you say, why is that? That's a big story. There's so much that um, Peter could have pulled from that. And yet, Peter decides to bring up that there was only eight of them that were saved. Right? Only eight of them. When it comes to suffering, when it comes to believing the things we do, it, it, we can feel like we're just a small group of people, right? Surrounding yourself with people at work, surrounding yourself with groups of friends who say, you really believe that? You really think that's in fact true? Why are you believing in outdated myths, as some might say? In fact, the Psalms, they have the same attitude. The psalmist will cry out to God, and he'll say, God, don't let me be put to shame for trusting in you, for putting my faith in you. Follow through when I need you in the last hour that you're going to, in fact, show up. 
And what happens in Psalms and what happens in Noah's day is this. God, in fact, does save him and save them. So perhaps you're the only family member that trusts Jesus this morning. Perhaps you're the only one at school who trusts Jesus amongst a, a group of friends. Perhaps you're the only one at work that trusts Jesus. Just so you know, Jesus is trustworthy. He's able to save. Don't let the surrounding voices around you dictate what you know to be true. Right? As it says in the Bible, let God be true and every man a liar. We trust God. So church, Jesus is trustworthy. And a symbol to show that we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus is that of baptism. Something we're celebrating next week, really exciting. And if you have yet to be baptized as a follower of Jesus, you need to be baptized as a follower of Jesus. Something that you need to do. But this picture of baptism is this. It is an inward, uh, outward expression of an inward confession. And really what baptism is showing is this. I've trusted in Jesus. The old me who trusted in myself, who trusted in other things, has died. The new one who trusts in Jesus now is coming out of the water, is now coming out of alive in Christ. It is an outward expression of an inward confession. Church, this morning, do you trust in Jesus? He is trustworthy. So let's conclude. Verse 22, we already read it, but I want to read this again just so we don't miss this. Because of Jesus' resurrection, because of Jesus' defeat over the spirits, it says in verse 22, he has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let me end with this, church. Just so you know, we win. The church wins. And this attitude permeates in Christian culture where it's, well, it's bunkered down. Let's just wait until the bad things go. No, no, all authority in heaven on earth belongs to Christ. It's his and it says right here, all other authorities are subjected to Christ. He is now the sole one in authority. And so as I tell you this, church, my heart is that, hey, Christians would take up property. They'd take up land. They'd start to grow. They'd start to cultivate. They'd make a Christian uh, world. That's what I desire. And as I say those things, though, I think the fear could be this. The fear could be, all right, well, let's start a holy war. Let's really get into it. And the answer to that is no. Jesus calls you and me to change this world for his glory. In fact, it's from one of the old prophets that it talks about the glory of the Lord filling this earth like the waters cover it. That's what we desire. But how do we do that? We do that, church, by being salt and light in the world, wherever God would place us. That means taking on suffering. That means taking on pain. That means when someone reviles against you, you bless them rather than curse them. I'll end with this story. Uh, there was a, a story I just read from an article back in 2006 in uh, Pennsylvania where a gunman went into an Amish village and he went to a, a school, the schoolhouse and he shot 10 kids, five of which died, aged 7 through 13. And then at the end of it, he, he took his own life. And the Amish actually, within hours, went to the house of his immediate family and to his parents to give their condolences for them losing their son, the shooter. Went there, gave condolences, let them know that, hey, they forgave them. And it rippled throughout the community. The community was saying, this is amazing. How were they so able to forgive, and how were they able to suffer well? And in fact, it actually grew to where a couple years later, a couple scholars picked it up because they were so perplexed. How was this possible? 
that someone shot their kids and they were able to forgive and suffer well. Because we as Americans, we don't, right? And the conclusion was this. At the heart of their faith, they worship a man who suffered for their enemy. And they were able to replay this story over and over through the preaching of the word, through singing of songs, through, through reciting this story over and over again. And just so you know, church, our building right here on the stage, but also outside, it's marked by a cross. And what does that cross mean? Well, as the old hymn writer says, it's an emblem of suffering and shame. Hopefully it communicates to our community that this is a place where you can suffer, that this is a home for suffering people. But beyond that, though, church, this is a place that really emphasizes what we value in looking to the cross. We worshiped a man who loved people so much that he was willing to suffer and die for them so that they might know God. And now, Jesus, he calls you and me as followers of him to imitate him, that we would give of our lives, that we would suffer and, and give of our time and our energy and our talents so that people might know Christ, even if it comes to the place of suffering in death, so that they might know God. I'll tell you what, church, I, uh, I'm 29 right now. I'm about to be 30, thinking about my life, thinking about what I want to do. The idea of the American dream couldn't sound anywhere from the worst idea possible. I want my life to mean something. I want my life to impact wherever it is for the glory of Jesus. I don't want to live this life that's just focused around me having things and stuff. I want to suffer for Jesus. And I think that's the call that he has for all of us. So let me pray for us.